ACP Proper's podcast, a show where we discuss the proper lectionary readings of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. My name is Pastor Stephen Wedgworth. I'm the rector of Christ Church here in South Bend, Indiana. Thanks for tuning in with us once again. So for today, we're going to get back into the regular Sunday cycle of the year with the first Sunday after Epiphany. Uh, We'll be releasing this episode before the actual day of Epiphany, and we've done a previous episode covering the Feast of Epiphany itself. Uh, So for now, we're going to move to the Sunday after Epiphany, what will be happening on uh, that Sunday morning for the ordinary service. As we begin, uh, we'll read the Collect of the Day. That will give us some of the major themes. Then we'll move into the uh, Communion Propers then the first lessons for morning and evening prayer. Here is the collect of the day for the first Sunday after the Epiphany. O Lord, we beseech thee mercifully to receive the prayers of thy people who call upon thee, and grant that they may both perceive and know what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this collect starts off talking about prayer, asking God to receive our prayers, but then it moves into a petition that we ask God to help us perceive and know what things we ought to do. Perceiving and knowing ties into the epiphany season, because the epiphany, it's yes, a vision, the star leading the wise men to Jesus, the other various miracles throughout the year, but epiphany also has to do with the revelation God gives us, where he shows us who he is and then, yes, teaches us what he would have us do. Uh, These things are going to come out in the epistles. The gospel readings tend to have the historic narratives of Christ, and on particular seasons they focus on those events in his life. And the epistle readings tend to have the moral or doctrinal application for us. And so we'll see throughout the Epiphany season the epistles uh, having to do with our minds being changed as we encounter Christ, and then that leading to new action. And that's what's coming up in this collect. We ask God to grant that we could perceive and know what we ought to do. And then we ask him to give us grace and power to faithfully fulfill the same. So as we are praying to God, we're asking him to hear our prayers. We're also asking him to teach us more about himself and his will for our lives than to give us grace to obey. So that's what the Collect is uh, teaching us for this first Sunday after the Epiphany. And I think it'll naturally uh, work its way into the Epistle for this week. You'll see the same themes coming out. So we'll move to the Epistle now. It comes from Romans chapter 12. And I should say, these first three Sundays after the Epiphany, the Epistle readings are all from Romans 12 in consecutive order. 
So this would be an opportunity if you wanted to do a consecutive expository series uh, through Romans 12. And then the, the, next, the, the next week after that, fourth week, we'll actually move into Romans 13 before then breaking out of that pattern and moving into other uh, passages. For 2024, though, we won't have that many Sundays uh, after Epiphany because we're going to move to the Jessimas fairly quickly. Uh, Ash Wednesday this year happens to fall on February 14th, which is Valentine's Day. Kind of funny. Uh, so that means the Jessimas are going to come pretty early, and so the Epiphany season proper is actually going to be rather short. So I think we'll only have these three Sundays, and then we'll pivot into the Jessimas. But for now, we're going to start with Romans 12, the first five verses. I won't read all of these, but I'll hit some of the highlights. Very familiar passage, famous passage, Romans 12, verse 1 and following. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then he goes on to tell us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but rather soberly, and to see ourselves as many members of the same body. So here in this epistle reading, the first two verses are the most famous, that we are to be living sacrifices, our bodies given to God. Um, and in context, Paul's just been describing uh, how it is that God has brought Gentiles into the people of God, so the earlier chapters of Romans, and he's had to field these questions about what about Israel according to the flesh? So now moving to a teaching on sacrifices would have been uh, very, very resonant of Old Testament, Old Covenant ideas and the transformation into the new. So when we hear living sacrifice, we definitely should think about sacrifice, priests bringing uh, animals or other things to the temple to give to the Lord. Only here, Paul's saying we should do that by presenting our bodies as sacrifices. A parallel theme will show up in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says you're a holy people, living stones in the spiritual house of God, offering up spiritual sacrifices. In Peter, it uh, seems more like that he's hitting on our worship proper, you know, our prayers, our thanksgiving, what we do as the gathered people. That's the spiritual sacrifice. Here in Paul, uh, in Romans 12, it's probably more focused on our lives, sanctification, because he says, give your bodies as a sacrifice, and then he says, proving what the will of God is. So our whole life of sanctification is an offering. Both of these things are true, of course. Yes, our worship is an offering. And yes, our lives are offerings. We present our entire selves to God. This should be familiar for those of you who have uh, heard the Book of Common Prayer's communion service. In the 1662, the prayer immediately after communion, you have a choice of two, but the first one, uh, it says that we're not worthy to offer any sacrifice, but 
Nevertheless, by the grace of Christ, we ask God to receive this, our bounden duty. Uh, we offer ourselves, our, our bodies, our, our whole selves to God. So our worship has been given to God, and now we're also giving our entire selves, our lives to come. It's important for Eucharistic theology, by the way. We're not only offering the bread and the wine. Uh, we're not even only offering um, our faith and our memory of Christ in the sacramental action, we are also offering our entire selves. The church as a collective body and each individual member, we offer our lives. We are a continual living sacrifice to God. And that's rooted here in Romans chapter 12. This is also teaching us that now the temple, the, the true temple, well, it's Christ, his body. We learned that at Christmas. But it now continues in the people of God. As we are transformed and worship God, we are the temple on earth. And this is our reasonable service. Those two words are loaded. The word service there is the word for worship, a variation of latria, um, uh, or actually, is this liturgia? I'm sorry, I'd have to double-check that. It's one of those two. I don't have my Greek in front of me. I'm going by memory. But it's one of those two words that has a specific meaning about uh, formal ritual worship. Only here it's being used to apply to something more than that. And reasonable, this is connected to the word for, for logic and for using your rationality, um, and commentators will explain different things of what it means. Oh, the old covenant was a carnal worship, giving animals. This is a reasonable worship, you know, giving your inner man, knowing what you're doing, all of that. Um, but I also think it's tied into this next verse, transformed uh, by the renewing of your mind. So the reasonable service follows from a renewed mind, and your mind has been renewed by the revelation, by God revealing himself. So this is your epiphany tie. We've asked God to help us perceive and know. Now we're being told that God is going to renew our mind. And once our mind is renewed, we actually prove his will, the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. So as we follow out God's teachings, we prove his will, we demonstrate it, we show it to the world. And that is our reasonable service, and that is how we are a living sacrifice. So also here is the idea that the people of God, following God's will, show and testify God's own character and nature to the world. We really are the temple. We are the sign, the, the source location where people can look to see God and to see his presence and to know him better. All the more reason, then, that we should pay close attention to our lives, to walk after God's revealed will, to try to say true things about him, which will then testify and reveal the glory of Christ to the world. And then the next thing here, it says, I, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, I say, 
not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So here we have the notion that not everyone is exactly equal, different measures of faith, different callings, different capabilities, so we should be humble. We should be sober and think clearly about ourselves and not be haughty and high-minded. We should see the good and the giftings in other members of the body as well. I think that message will tie us into the gospel reading of the young Jesus in the temple, amazing the doctors. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, we are to know our place, not to be higher than we ought, but also not to deny what we have, to see what we've been given so that we can play our part. We're living sacrifices, but we're not on our own. Each of us are different parts of this body of Christ, different gifts, different strengths, and we should find our particular calling, know our place, be content with it, and then use what we have to serve God and to show his will to the world. Let's move to the gospel now. Uh, the gospel reading for this week comes from Luke's gospel, chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. And this is the uh, passage where Jesus and his family have gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. The text tells us Jesus is 12. So one of the only uh, places in the scriptures where we have a picture of Jesus' childhood. You know, Christmas you have it where he's an infant. At Epiphany, he's a young child. We're not sure, probably uh, no older than two, though. And then we have this one at 12, and then it'll jump straight to his adult ministry. So this is really one of the only times of Jesus being a child. And while he and his family are in Jerusalem for the Passover, um, he gets lost, <laughs> <laughs> this is a home alone kind of scenario. His parents leave. They think he's with them in the group, uh, but he tarried behind. So obviously they had a big company, family, cousins, different relatives. He's 12, so they're not as worried to have to keep eyes on him at all times. But eventually they find out he's not there. Uh, and so they turn back to look for him. And after three days of looking for him, now, three days symbolic makes you think of three days in the Bible, but also as a parent, I can't imagine looking for my child for three days, goodness. Um, after three days, they find him, he's in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. So Jesus has been spending this time in the temple learning, but also now teaching. At age 12, he's smarter than the doctors. This is one of the ways he's manifesting his particular divine characteristics. And the first reaction is by Mary. She's upset. She's, she is actually rebuking Jesus here raises a lot of interesting questions about her understanding. Who did she think Jesus was? To what degree was this appropriate to rebuke Jesus? Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And Jesus answers, 
how is it that you sought me? Wist ye not? So didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. So no, they, they don't understand yet. <laughs> they don't have the full revelation, at least mentally. They don't have fully transformed minds. Uh, but nevertheless, he goes back with them, and it says he was subject unto them. So Jesus, having first been obedient to his heavenly Father by being in his house, studying his business, uh, now goes back and is subject and obedient to his earthly parents, even though he actually knows better than them. He's greater than they are, but because he is still a child, he knows his place, he's obedient and fulfills his calling, he submits to his parents. And then it says Mary ponders at all of this. She, she keeps these things in her heart. Uh, she's thinking it over, trying to understand what all this could mean. As Jesus continues to grow in stature and wisdom, both with God and man. So we see here Jesus, he already has the fullness of the revelation. He knows more than even the doctors, and they're all amazed by this. This is one of the ways you should be able to see that Jesus is special. Uh, on the other hand, his parents don't really get it yet. They've got to learn, his earthly parents, I mean. And while Jesus is going home and uh, being obedient and growing under his parents, we also have his parents, or at least Mary, also growing, thinking, learning, pondering. Uh, she's gaining more revelation as she starts to see uh, Christ's attributes and characteristics. Uh, now, this is a great passage to talk about uh, who Jesus is and uh, his um, already apparent uh, special status, that something is unique about him. He is greater than an ordinary boy, certainly at 12. This is also a good passage to use for just teaching kids. Look, you got to obey your parents, even if sometimes your parents are wrong. You know, and that does happen. I speak as a parent. I've been a child before. <laughs> uh, parents make mistakes, but they still have the office and position of parent. And it's still a child's duty to be subject to them. In this situation, the parents, I think they were wrong. But Jesus, who has no sin at all, he, he obeys and he follows after them and does the right thing. So as uh, the Christmas carol says, you know, Christian children all must be faithful, uh, good, uh, faithful, obedient, good as he, is that what it says? Or holy, good as he, I want some Royal David City. <laughs> Sorry, I should have that in front of me as well, going by memory. Um, Christian children should be obedient and good good, because Jesus was. And not only in the abstract that Jesus was good, but Jesus was a good little boy. He obeyed his parents. He gives us an example of every stage of life. Also, this ties into what we were saying about Epiphany and the Epistle reading, because where are they? They are in the temple. But the true temple, the word become flesh, tabernacling amongst us, he is actually present within the temple. He's the true and living word, and he's beginning to make things new. He's showing forth the true will of God in his life, and people are taking notice 
and all who come to him will become the new living temple. And this is all epiphany, manifesting God's glory, revealing uh, the deity of Christ to the world, and this is how we are to be saved. Let's move to the Old Testament readings now. Uh, in morning prayer and then later in evening prayer, the first lessons on Sundays are propers. That means they were chosen for the day. There's a logic to these Old Testament propers. They're working their way consecutively, though not every verse. They survey books, uh, but they're working their way consecutively, moving you through the Old Testament. Uh, however, Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany all come from Isaiah. They do move consecutively, so that's still happening, but it's all in Isaiah. So it's a heavy dose of Isaiah at the beginning of the church year, and that will continue through Epiphany. It changes when you get to the Jessimas, and then you'll go back to Genesis at that point. So we are in Isaiah, continuing that consecutive survey, but there's also going to be Epiphany-relevant teachings in Isaiah, at least for these weeks. So we should keep eyes out for that. Why does this match the epiphany season? And then finally, we should ask, does it, uh, does it interact with those New Testament propers? Uh, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I don't want to force that. But I find that more often than not, there are places of connection, uh, even if it's not immediately obvious on the first run-through, as you meditate and think on the meanings of all of the passages, then the connections will uh, show themselves. So the Old Testament reading for morning prayer is going to come from Isaiah 44. Now this is not perhaps a famous passage to all, but it's really an interesting passage. A lot of neat stuff in here. In fact, one of the funniest parts of the scriptures is satirical criticism of idols coming up. But it starts off with God uh, proclaiming who he is. Um, he's telling Israel, you are my servant who I have chosen. I am going to pour out water on thirsty lands and bring you back to myself. So a prophecy of renewal after the people of God have been chastised and away from him. He'll bring them back and restore them. Um, and you will then, through this, you'll know God better. Uh, the Lord uh, will be written on your hands uh, that we are the Lord's. I am the Lord's. And then verses 6 through 8, famous proclamation of monotheism. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Beside me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. I'll stop here for a moment. So, only one God. That's clear. No others like him. He can't be compared. And in the immediate context, that's going to be contrasted against idols and uh, the gods of the nations. But this is also relevant for epiphany. We're realizing, we're seeing who God is, a vision of God, and, and there's only one God. Christianity does not change that. But Jesus is God. In him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
We have to ponder that. That's starting to get us prepared to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And this expression, I am the first and I am the last, beside me there is no God, Isaiah 44, 6, this is picked up in the New Testament and repeated in the book of Revelation in at least two places. Revelation 1, 17, and then again in 22, 13, the beginning and the end, first and the last, Alpha and the Omega. But in Revelation, it's Jesus who's saying that. So, the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, he was the first and the last. Jesus is the first and the last. So, put it together. The Lord who's speaking to Isaiah is Jesus prior to his coming in the flesh. So there's a revelation. There's an epiphany right there. Wow. Jesus is the God of Israel. He is eternal. He is preexistent. He is the first and the last. And then Isaiah 44 continues with this critique of idols. Uh, and it's so funny because it talks about the ironsmith. He takes a cutting tool. He chops the tree down. He's working it over the coals. Now he's fashioning it. He's making something out of metal, melting it down, takes a, a stretches a line, marks it out with a pencil, planes and marks, cuts down cedars and cypresses, makes it for fuel so they can heat himself and bake bread. This is verse 15. He takes a part of it, warms himself, kindles a fire, and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. <laughs> he makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat, roasts, and satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen a fire. And then the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and he worships it and he prays to it. And he says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Now, you should be smirking here. <laughs> Isaiah is writing this on purpose to make fun of idolatry. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? This is ridiculous. This is outrageous. The person worshiping idols feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The true God doesn't lie. He can always make promises. The true God delivers himself and his people. But this idolater, he can't deliver himself, and his idol can't deliver him either. In fact, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, just imagine. Go to the woods, chop down your tree, carve into an idol, and then you start worshiping it. The maker is greater than the thing made, isn't he? <laughs> this criticism of idolatry is throughout the scriptures. God is the maker of heaven and earth. He has made us, not we ourselves. Uh, what does it mean to be a God? It means you made things, nothing made you. You are eternal. You are first and the last. You are the creator, not the creation. That's what it means to be God in the Bible. And so to make an idol is already outrageous. It's already ridiculous. Um, the Apostle Paul says this in Athens, you know, why should we think of God as something made from man's hands? Are we not the offspring of God? So, I mean, we're better than the things we make, and God's got to be better than us, right? Why would we worship something we are greater than? 
<laughs> the artist is greater than the art. Uh, it's something to keep in mind. You know, Anglicans in the 20th and 21st century, people into sacramental liturgical theology, they, they get really into art and they make it super sacred and holy. And some of that can be okay, but it easily leads into danger. They start having icons and statuary. They want to use that for their worship and they, they act like that's somehow better and more spiritual and more appreciative of, of the incarnation or something. But the scriptures are consistent that actually, no, no, humans, uh, people, actual people, are better and greater than anything made out of wood or metal or glass. And you can never bow down and pray to or worship created things. We should see God's image firstly in his people and then being driven to his word. We see it most fully through his son, Jesus, and then our minds are transformed, as Romans says, we're elevated to contemplate God himself through the Spirit. Idolatry must be rejected. We must not use created things as a way to encounter God. We must never bow down and worship them. And then God wraps up his prophecy through Isaiah, promising redemption. He's going to use this character Cyrus, who is his shepherd. So God being active among a Gentile, another epiphany theme there, to bring his people back, to give them new light. And then what will he do? Through Cyrus, actually, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. So new temple prophecy here. Stay away from idols. Trust the Lord. He will work. He will redeem you. And even through unlikely sources like a Gentile, he will restore his people and build a new temple. So more epiphany ideas, more Jesus imagery. Jesus being the new temple, we gathered around him as those living sacrifices. This is prophesied at least in part here in Isaiah. And then chapter 46, this is what we will read for Evensong, the first lesson for evening prayer. Isaiah 46, it begins still criticizing idols. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So the gods of Babylon are actually taken captive. Uh, now, obviously, the Babylonians would have said this about Israel. Hey, we sacked your temple. We took all of your holy things. We must be greater than your god. Uh, the Assyrians were boasting that back in the day, too, that that's what they did to everyone. Well, now Isaiah's turning it on them and says, well, actually, you're, that's going to happen to your gods, too. Because the true God is governing all of this. He can send other nations to take you out. He's still in control. Isaiah 46, verse 5, God speaking, To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Obviously not. There is none like God, none beside him. So know your place, know your station. He's the highest. Be humble, worship him. Tying into some of our New Testament themes. And verse 6 and 7 continues, idol worship is, again, it's ridiculous. It's backwards. 
the one who lavishes the gold and the silver and has it made into a god, he then falls down and worships it. They're carrying this god around on their shoulders, setting it in its place. It can't move. They have to move it. Then they cry out to it and ask it for answer, but it gives nothing. Ridiculous. Also, not knowing one's place. You're greater than the idol. God's greater than everybody. You're greater than the idol. Why are you bowing down to something inferior to you? You ought to bow down to something superior to you. That is God. So filling out this silliness of being out of sorts, not knowing your place, misidentifying. You need a renewed mind. See God properly. And then the chapter concludes with a you know, a very tantalizing statement from a Christian perspective. Verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Paul's going to say this in Romans, right? Uh, the word is not far away. You don't have to go up to heaven or down in Sheol. It's near you. He's going to say the same thing at Athens. Uh, God is not far from us. And in Christ, he comes as near as possible. Through the Spirit, he comes to our very hearts. His righteousness is on us. This is ultimately how we're justified through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And his salvation is put in the midst of Zion, which is the true and heavenly people. Christ in the midst of them. The glory of Israel. Now we could also think about how this ties to the gospel reading. Salvation in the midst of Israel. Jesus. He will save his people. He is the Savior. And there he is in the middle of the temple. We all beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. His glory in the middle of Israel, in the temple. They're all seeing it. He is their righteousness. He is their salvation. It continues to be that for us. If you put your trust in Christ, you have his righteousness, you are saved, and indeed you then reflect his glory. To all the world, they look at you and can see Christ, and then through that, they can see God. And so Isaiah's prophecies here, though given back in the time of Israel, when we interpret them through the light of Christ, they reveal the fullness of God. And they are very appropriate for the Epiphany season, and they even match these readings we've had for this week uh, the living sacrifice, the new temple, which proves God's will to all who see it, uh, knowing the proper place, who's greater, who's lower, what you ought to do in your station, and seeing how Christ himself is that salvation and glory in the midst of Israel, in the midst of his people. A lot of good stuff this week to talk about and to preach on. Uh, you can always choose any of these passages uh, as sermon material, and they're all so rich. I usually like to blend a couple of them together to show the fullness to my congregation uh, and uh, try to tie in both how they apply to Epiphany and then how they apply uh, to us as believers in light of all of God's redemptive history. 
we'll conclude by reading that collect again. And now having all of these biblical passages in our mind, uh, we'll see even better how it applies to us. O Lord, we beseech thee mercifully to receive the prayers of thy people who call upon thee, and grant that they may both perceive and know what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. This is the BCP Proper's Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Wedgworth. If you like what you hear, you can check out past episodes. Uh, last year, I worked uh, with a co-host, Clayton Hutchins. We did all of Trinity season. And uh, at the turn of the new church year at Advent, I began doing these episodes solo. But they're all available online, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, other sites. Check them out. Tell a friend if you like them. Uh, pick up a copy of the Book of Common Prayer. Hope that you'll grow in your knowledge, your understanding, your enjoyment of the Word of God and of the teaching of His people over the years as they study the Scriptures together. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.